this week we are finishing up the fourth commandment. Uh, there may be a point in the future in which I can clarify and refine some of the points, the biblical and theological basis for this command. But I hope that from what we saw last week and what we will see today, that we will have a firmer foundation. We will have a firmer foundation in which we can build upon and improve upon our biblical affirmation of Sabbath keeping. Again, last week I understand that there is a lot that may be new to you, Uh, or to some of you, though our pastors have affirmed the Sabbath commandment throughout their ministry. Last week was intended to be somewhat of a course correction to certain practices that were among us at Grace. But like what we've seen with the other commandments, I want us now to look at the commandment uh, more than just another rule that we should obey. I want us to delight in this commandment as the others, just as I want us to delight in the sanctity of authority, the fifth commandment, the sanctity of life, the sixth, sanctity of marriage, seventh, the sanctity of provision, the eighth, sanctity of truth, the ninth, and the sanctity of godly desires, the tenth. I want us to delight in the worship of God, commandments one through three, and I want us to delight even in the patterns of work and rest for worship, commandment number four. And I believe that there is no better place to see this and delight in the example of our Lord than in the delight in the example of the Lord. And so with this in mind, we're going to read Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll pray that God's blessing would be upon us. So Matthew 12. At that point, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of the grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to them, Look, your disciples are doing what is uh, not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for him to eat for those who were with him, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Jesus said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored. Healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How? To destroy him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good to us and that you show us the example of what true Sabbath keeping looks like in the person and work of Christ. Lord, as we hear upon these words now, as we endeavor to see what the New Testament says about Sabbath keeping, that we would delight in them that we would not see this as a needless burden or for us to see this day as a list of rules of what we can't do on Sundays, but rather that we should seek and endeavor to delight, to savor, and enjoy this day that you have given us for our rest and for your worship. Lord, we thank you for this day. May you be delighted in us as we contemplate your law and contemplate the example of Christ. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. To show the trajectory of where we are going today, we will be trying to flesh out the objective of last week's sermon. Last week, our goal was to affirm and practice the biblical principle to abstain from all forms of needless work and employment for the purpose of worshiping God on his prescribed day. Last week, we mainly focused on the patterns of work and rest and the practices that should, should and should not mark the Christian church. But today, I want us to focus on that aspect of worship on God's prescribed day of rest. For us as the New Covenant community, our day of rest and worship is today, the Lord's day. 
I want us to affirm that Sunday is God's day of rest and the church's day to worship. So then I believe that we can be best served this morning if we see the reasons for our Sunday Sabbath keeping. Also, as I promised last week, one of our aims this morning is to answer any biblical or theological questions that the New Testament presents to us concerning the fourth commandment. So then with our path before us, we have three main points. First, we will deal with the New Testament problem passages, if we can call them that, as it regards the Sabbath. We will see that the New Testament does not abrogate the Sabbath. In fact, it repurposes and frees the commandment for the new covenant community to enjoy. Second, we'll see that Jesus' example concerning the Sabbath. We will see that during his ministry, he affirmed the proper observance of this commandment. And it's a delight to see that. And third, we will also see that Christ's resurrection and Pentecost give rise to the Sunday Sabbath. We will see that Christ gathered with his disciples regularly on the first day of the week after his resurrection and that historically the Spirit was applied to us, historically, redemptively, applied to us on the Lord's Day as well at Pentecost. Hopefully by the end of these three points, we will be more confident in Scripture's teaching on the fourth commandment. And so with that said, this is going to be a doozy of a sermon. So if you have kids who are going to be, you know, a little bit, you know, crying, things like that, that's more than fine. We're going to be here for a while, so just buckle up, folks. All right, so our first our first point, problem passages. So for our first major point, we will discuss certain problem passages that are often associated with the Sabbath principle. Though these are not comprehensive of all the arguments made against our historic Christian practice, they are the most pervasive nowadays. There are three passages in Paul's epistles that we should look at. Colossians 2.17, which we have just read, Galatians 4.10, and Romans 14, verse 5. These passages are often used as proof texts against, against the Sabbath commandment, as we understand it properly. But as we will see, they in no way, in no way speak to the moral and perpetually binding fourth commandment. Also, we will see that there is a day that the New Testament presents as the day of worship and rest, and that is the Lord's Day. So first, Colossians, first subpoint, I guess you could say, 1A, Colossians 2.17. So first, please open your Bibles back to Colossians 2. In Colossians, Paul is dealing with a particular false teaching that is somewhat hard to pin down. Throughout the letter, he references, he references both Jewish and Greek practices and beliefs that were infiltrating the church at Colossae. These false teachers were using their understanding of Greek philosophy and the Jewish ceremonial laws to unlawfully bind Christians conscience, uh, Christians conscience they were essentially saying if you didn't practice in this practice in this way or believe these certain points you were outside of the will of God and not saved pretty strong indictment Paul rebukes this false teaching by preaching the gospel of free grace and it's something like this Though God is infinitely holy and perfect, and we deserve his eternal wrath. God sent Christ and his love for his people to save them from that wrath to come. God saves sinners not because they believe or practice some seemingly spiritual practice as these false teachers were promoting, as they were preaching. Christians are only saved through repenting of their sins and leaning upon Christ through faith. It is only by receiving Christ through faith, by believing what he has revealed about salvation, his salvation, that we are truly saved. And Christ's way of salvation is the atonement of our sins that he secured for us at the cross. It's not by our good works. It's not by our seemingly spiritual practices that we are saved. We are saved in the way God has revealed to us in Christ Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not saved by our spiritual practices or whatever these Colossian heretics were conjuring up. And it is in the context of teaching against this heresy that Paul addresses the issue of the Sabbath. That's important. In Colossians 2.16, Paul writes this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Amen and amen. 
In this context, Paul is rebuking a false teaching as it relates to the Jewish ceremonial law. From this passage, we can infer that these false teachers were insisting that true God followers, the really good ones, true God followers, would practice the Jewish ceremonial laws. In Colossians, false teachers uh, probably saw outward spiritual or ritual practices as really tantalizing. To these false teachers, both the Jews and the Greeks had these really cool outward practices that made them look distinguished and noble. But as Paul later says in his letter, these have an indeed of an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Peripherally, these look cool, but... At its core, they were nothing. They were hollow. You see, it was these outward practices that made these false teachers proud. And Paul is rebuking them for thinking that needless rituals and religious holidays made man acceptable before God or even aided in their sanctification. Thus, it is this false teaching that was completely antithetical to the gospel of Christ. Paul is not addressing the moral law here. He's not addressing Christian sanctification. He's not addressing the fourth commandment as a rule of Christian obedience or as a pattern of our sanctification. He is addressing the arrogant and misguided attempt to gain favor before God through man-made, pathetic rituals that God had not mandated in his word. Furthermore, in Colossians 2.17, Paul states that the festivals... Uh, states that the festivals, new moons, and Sabbath are a shadow of things to come. That phrase, that's, this is very important, and this is where I'm going to geek out for a moment, so I apologize. Festival, new moons, and Sabbath is used multiple times throughout the Old Testament, typically referring to what we call the, the Levitical calendar. For example, Ezekiel 45 verse 17 uses this phrase with clear reference to the Levitical calendar. If you would, turn there with me. Ezekiel 45 verse 17. This is very important for how we understand Colossians 2.17. Ezekiel 45 verse 17 states this. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast or festivals, same word, new moons, and the Sabbath. And catch this, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. What we should take away from this short passage is that Ezekiel qualifies these three nouns, the feast, or the festival, new moons, and Sabbaths, by the next phrase that comes, all the appointed feasts. The term appointed feast, modim, in the Hebrew, actually comes from Leviticus chapter 23. So if you would, please turn there with me. And Leviticus 23 is called the Levitical calendar by biblical uh, scholars. In Leviticus 23, we see that God establishes the laws and dates for the various festivals and holidays of ancient Israel. Leviticus 23, verses 1, and you could really extend this to verses 1 to 3, it almost acts as a title for this section of Leviticus. But Leviticus 1, 23, verse 1, says, says this. These are the appointed feasts, the modim of the Lord, that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. These are my appointed feasts, my modim. Thus, we should understand that both Ezekiel and Paul, Ezekiel and Paul, are referencing the same body of literature, the Levitical calendar of Leviticus chapter 23. Clear as mud? Good. So from the linguistic choice of Paul in Colossians, it is best to see him referring to the ceremonial Sabbaths of the Old Testament, not the moral law. The ceremonial festivals were Sabbaths in that God mandated a cessation of work on these particular festival days. And as Paul says in Colossians 2.17, the ceremonial Sabbaths and the festivals were shadows of Christ. They speak to the festive and joyful rest that is ours in Christ Jesus. But Paul's statement in no way undermines the Christian's, uh, the Christian's commitment 
an obligation to the moral law or the fourth commandment. So whoever says that Christ is their Sabbath rest as a cop-out for obeying God's moral law is confusing terms. You're completely missing the idea here. We are freed from the ceremonial Sabbaths, the holidays, the Levitical calendar, but we are not saved from the moral law, the moral Sabbath. In fact, it is our delight. Second passage, Galatians 4, verse 10. Galatians 4 is another passage that is wrongly used in these conversations, but the answer is very similar to Colossians 2. In Galatians, Paul is rebuking the Judaizers um, here, these false teachers who are saying that Christians had to keep the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant, to be justified. Now I can get rid of my computer. So, he's dealing with the Old Covenant uh, people who are saying that we had to be justified by keeping the Old Covenant with all of its laws, the ceremonial and the legal. In his agitation with them, those who have, and those who have followed him, Paul states this about these people. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. From the context of Paul dealing with the Judaizers, we should understand him referring again to the ceremonial Sabbaths and holidays. Similar to the Colossian heresy, the Judaizers wanted to add to the gospel, to add to Christ's perfect work. For the Judaizers, it wasn't enough to simply place our faith in Christ, to be counted right before him. Oh no, these Judaizers... For these Judaizers, they needed the Old Covenant as well. For them, you had to first become a Jew through the Old Covenant codes and laws and then receive Christ. But for Paul and for us, this is horrific. This is anti-gospel. This is anti-Christ. The Judaizers, Judaizers were abandoning the gospel by trying to find justification before God through ceremonial laws and rules, and in this case, the Old Covenant holidays. Paul was dealing with the legalism that stemmed from a misunderstanding of the Old Covenant's function in the life of the New Covenant church. Paul's disdain for the Judaizers for their observance of certain days wasn't because they were trying to live out uh, their Christian obedience and had some hiccups along the way. That's not it. No. They were abandoning the gospel. They were wanting the old covenant with some Jesus on the side. Not Jesus alone. Paul is groaning in agony over the Galatians going under the old covenant yet again to build any doctrine, brothers, Therefore, to build any doctrine of Sabbath-keeping as a sign of obedience for our sanctification and delighting in it from this passage would be irresponsible. It's irresponsible since Paul is not referring, referring to the moral law, nor to sanctification, nor to Christian obedience. It's irresponsible. Third, Romans 14, verse 5. This is our third passage for our first point, Romans 14. In Romans 14, Paul is actually speaking to the idea of Christians observing particular days with the seventh day in view. So this is an appropriate place to turn. In Romans 14, verses 1 through 9, Paul makes day observance, and this is important, a Christian conscience issue or a liberty issue. Here's what I mean. Just as some Christians had freedom to eat certain foods based on their individual conscience, certain Jewish Christians were still trying to figure out how to fit their newfound love of Christ with their cherished Jewish practices. These Jewish Christians weren't saying they were holier or better than the other Christians because of their observance. They weren't like the Colossians or the Galatians. Rather, they had prior practices that weighed on their conscience as individuals from a particular religious background. This is similar to those who personally have a disdain for alcohol because of uh, their, their homes were from abusers or that they come from a religious background in which alcohol is, is seen as a, a deep sin. 
Paul states in verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Now, this statement with, is not in reference to the moral law practice. This statement is referencing how Jewish and Gentile Christians should respect one another's practices, even though they are very different. So with this in mind, we should note that throughout the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts, Paul and many other Christians still met with Jews on the seventh day Sabbath. This is important. They still met with Jews on the seventh day Sabbath. This was not because they considered the seventh day the proper day of worship, as we will see in a moment. Rather, many Jewish believers were still going to synagogue on Saturdays because it was part of their culture. And to forsake the synagogue was an egregious sin according to their individual conscience. At that point in history, God had changed the Sabbath day to Sunday, but that did not mean that the church, which was largely Jewish at that time, did not allow for conscience issues such as this. So for a Gentile Christian who esteems all days alike, they were free not to go to synagogue, whereas the Jewish Christian who esteems one day better than, the, than another were free to go to the synagogue. Again, this esteeming all days alike is in the context of Christian freedom in relation to the Jewish practice. In comparison to the Jew, the Gentiles all days, what we should understand that phrase in uh, 14.5, we should understand this qualitatively, not quantitatively. All Paul is doing here is highlighting the difference that exists among Christians as it regards the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day, that is. So Paul is not affirming that there is no unique day of worship and rest. We will see that in just a moment. His own actions in the books of Acts would betray such a reading because Paul and other Christians regularly gathered on the first day of the week. Again, to build a doctrine of Sabbath-keeping for the New Testament church uh, as, as part of our sanctification upon this text would be irresponsible of the exegete and theologian, yet it happens time and time and time again in the Christian church. We need good exegetical practices when building our doctrine, not weak-willed, filthy, awful exegesis. Bunny trail aside. Another consideration for our first point. Just to drive the point home, in the book of Acts, though there is a seventh-day observance of the Jewish Sabbath, the apostolic and Christian practice of Sunday observance became more and more prominent as the church grew in its understanding, as the church became more and more non-Jewish. This pattern, and this is, this is helpful, I hope, for some, this pattern is similar to what we see with certain spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues. At the beginning of Acts, the gift of tongues is a prominent feature of the church, but it quickly dissipates and fades from practice by the, ends, by the end of Acts. Have you noticed that? Go read Acts. Just do that. That's your homework for Sunday. What else do you have to do, right? And so we see uh, uh, tongues kind of dissipating at the end. Likewise, uh, you know, we need to ask the question, why does this happen? The purpose for this action of this dissipation is that its purpose for the church was no longer needed. We no longer needed the, the miraculous gift of tongues. Likewise, though the pattern of Sunday observance, observance is instituted at the beginning of Acts, it takes a while for Jewish Christians, Jewish Christians, to really tease this out and to understand it. But as we get closer to the end of Acts, we see Paul and the Christian church clearly practicing a Sunday observance. For example, Acts 20, verse 7, Paul gathers with the saints to break bread and to preach on the first day of the week. In Colossians 1, 16, verse 2, Paul directly commands the church to gather on the first day of the week in order to collect for the ministry. Thus, so we can see both an example of Paul and the direct command of Paul for Sunday gatherings, for the ministry of the word, and for the breaking of bread. And this is something else that we need to notice. Gathering for the preaching of the word, the breaking of bread, 
and worshiping, which they were doing, according to God's revelations, were still the same patterns of the Old Covenant Sabbath. Uh, this is called uh, the Mikrah. The Mikrah in the Old Testament is the holy convocation. What did they do on those days? Worship according to God's revelation, break bread together, collect tithes and offerings, and that was about the extent. And so those were the activities that pinpointed uh, the Sunday observance. From this, we should assume that the early church was sanctifying the day by resting and ceasing work. If we see the positive activities that they were doing, we should understand them, that they were actually practicing uh, the Sabbath, sanctifying the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Any non-Christian Jew during the first century, when they saw the practices of the early church, they would assume that Christians were practicing Sabbath, but on the first day. Paul is indicating by this activity that, they were take, that was taking place that the first day is acting as a new Sabbath for the New Testament church. Brothers, this pattern of activity of worship, and this inherently implies the activity of rest, is what gives rise to the term Lord's Day. In Revelation 1.10, uh, it uses this term, the Lord's Day, as a technical term instead of the first day when describing the day that John was in the Spirit. The Lord's Day is unique to the Christian church because it is the day that is given for the sanctified rest and worship of the new covenant church. Just as Passover and all the sacred meals of the Old Testament are renewed as the Lord's Supper by Christ, so too is the Old Testament Sabbath renewed and repurposed into the Lord's Day. Brothers, that was a lot of information coming your way. Right? Amen? Oh, come on. That was a lot, right? That, that was a bit much. A little heavy. I understand. I know for some, you just need a minute to gather and absorb what's been thrown your way. And I completely understand. And brothers, I'm not here to needlessly bind your conscience. That is not my goal here. I don't want you to look exactly like me on how to uh, practice the Sabbath. But we need to be in the practice of keeping God's moral law. And that includes the fourth commandment. And we need to understand what that looks like for us in the context of the new covenant community. Again, I'm just trying to build the scriptural foundation for the reasons we hold to the historic Christian practice of Sabbath keeping. And we do have more to see. But as I'm slinging scripture at you. I'm hoping that these major roadblocks in your minds will be broken down. Our first major point was to show that any proof of Sabbath abolition is nonsense, and it is. I want us to see that, the, that these misused proof texts are not how the Christian church is to formulate any doctrine, let alone the fourth commandment. The New Testament does not teach that the Sabbath is gone. In fact, we get the opposite. We see that the Lord's Day come to prominence as a day of rest and worship. Brothers, it is only when we get all the mud and gunk out of our eyes that we begin to see clearly what God's word actually teaches on this issue. For me, this, the question of the Sabbath is, is kind of like the doctrines of grace, right? It took a lot of wee pulling to get to where I could cultivate a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation. And the same was true for the fourth commandment. The more I fought against it, the more I earnestly looked at Scripture to understand what Scripture said about the issue, the more I was drawn to this glorious conclusion that God has set apart a day for our rest and worship. Brothers, our question should not be, is the Sabbath still binding? No. No. Our question should be, what does the Sabbath look like for us, and how should we delight in it? With that question in mind, we now turn to our second major point, Jesus' teaching on the Sabbath. And this is personally my favorite. This is where Matthew 12 comes in hand, so please turn there with me. In Matthew 12, we see one of the numerous interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees as it regarded the Sabbath. There are numerous other passages that we could go to, but this particular passage summarizes well what Jesus taught on the issue. 
But before we actually look at Matthew 12, there are two things that we must note. First, throughout my years of study, and there are not many, I have noticed that many Christians come with an assumption that Jesus nullified or abrogated the Sabbath like he did with the food laws in Matthew 7:19. That's kind of an assumption that they come to the text with. But he did no such thing. He did no such thing. Even in the case of the food laws, it was only after Christ's resurrection and ascension that Peter is told that, all, that God made all foods clean. This is similar to the Sabbath. It was only after Christ's keeping, perfect keeping of the Old Covenant that he abrogates the ceremonial and civil laws of the Old Covenant. You see, Jesus kept every single letter of the Old Covenant laws, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. He did this to show that he was the true Israel who kept God's covenant and to free those, who, to free those from their bondage to and the curse of the Old Covenant law, as Galatians 3 tells us. So Jesus, during his ministry, upheld the ceremonial and civil law for the salvation of those under the law and according to the purposes of the Father's will. At one point, for example, Jesus even tells a man who has been healed to show himself to the priests according to the ceremonial law. This is Luke 5, verse 15. So, brothers, what we need to take away from this is that Jesus took the old covenant seriously. If we say, and this is important, if we say that Jesus broke the old covenant, if we say that Jesus broke the old covenant, even the ceremonial Sabbath, we are saying that he broke the law of God that God gave him to fulfill. Breaking the law of God, even the ceremonial law at that time, would be sin. If we affirm that Jesus broke Sabbath or taught contrary to it, we are, we are affirming that Jesus is a sinner. Brothers, I'm going to use a very big theological term. This is a massive no-no. We do not believe this. Jesus is perfect and sinless. He kept the moral law and the civil law and the ceremonial law perfectly for our salvation. So when we read passages like John 5 verse 18, which states that Jesus broke Sabbath, we should understand these statements in their context. Every single time that Jesus taught on the Sabbath, there were Pharisees or the influence of the Pharisees involved. And this is what Matthew 12 demonstrates to us. And this is the second thing that we need to do or, or to understand before we come to Matthew 12. So second, Pharisees were vilified by the gospel writers for, not for their allegiance to the old covenant. They would not be vilified for that. They were vilified because of their abuse and misconstruing of the Old Covenant. Remember, though the Old Covenant is abrogated, it is still Scripture and can inform us how to live righteously. But the Old Covenant teachings were not enough for the Pharisees. The Pharisees had additional rules and commandments that were not part of God's moral law or his civil or ceremonial the Pharisees, through their pseudo-intellectual rigor and legal gymnastics, came up with rules that they thought would keep Israel's from possibly sinning. This is what Jesus is referencing when he's talking about uh, uh, their, their uh, uh, ancestral laws, right? I, I can't help it. This is such a, it's a horrific and sad illustration, but it's perfect. The Pharisees are similar to our Supreme Court justices just this past week, brothers. These Pharisees are just like our Supreme Court justices. They added conflicting and anachronistic rules concerning the LGBT community into the Civil Rights Act of 1964. By anachronistically inserting their own opinion into the law, they fundamentally changed the law's original intent. The Pharisees did the same thing with the Old Covenant. They anachronistically inserted their own opinion into the Old Covenant, though their own opinion undermined much of what the Old Testament actually taught, its original intent. So with these points in mind, we come with to Matthew 12. In this passage, the Pharisees get uppity, another big theological term. 
They get uppity when they see that Christ's disciples were plucking grain on the Sabbath. They say that this is unlawful to do on the Sabbath. But where in the world did they get that from? That's not in the Old Covenant. It's not from the Old Covenant law. Civil, ceremonial, moral, nowhere. Where in the world did they get that from? Nowhere in the Old Covenant does it legislate for when people could pluck grain for a quick bite. Only in Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, does God teach on plucking grain. But it in no way teaches or declares that doing it on the Sabbath was a sin. Nowhere. In fact, eating grain in this way was a sign of God's provision for those who were poor, such as Christ and his disciples. So in verse 3, Jesus challenges the Pharisees' Pharisees accusation on two fronts. So we see him cite 1 Samuel 21, where David and his company are allowed to eat of the bread of presence. This bread was not only to be given to the 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 Arianic priesthood, but David is allowed to eat it for some reason. If you read that section of 1 Samuel, the whole purpose of that narrative, and this is just a quick aside, is that David was God's true anointed, and thus he had unique authority by God. It's not that David was unlawful in accordance with God's standard, but Jesus means unlawful according to the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. With that anachronistic understanding, they're actually having the entire Old Testament break down. And that's Jesus' point. The Sabbath is not a club to beat men over the head. It is a day in which we should sanctify, but it's used for God's purposes. Likewise, Jesus also cites the work on the Sabbath of the priest. But according to the Old Covenant laws, these priests were mandated by God to work on this day. If the Pharisees' interpretation was consistent, they would have to overthrow the entire Old Covenant ceremonial system, which is the exact opposite of what they wanted. And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus is a really good lawyer. And Jesus leads these Pharisees with these words to ponder. And this is key for this section. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, you would not have condemned the guiltless, meaning David or the priest. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is affirming the original intent of the Sabbath in this section of Matthew. It was not a day for ritualistic or legalistic hoopla. It was a day of rest used for God's purposes. As Christ says in Mark 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of glorious rest to be used for the purposes of God. And Christ demonstrates the purpose of God in the following verses. In verse 12 and following, the Pharisees present a man with a withered hand to see whether they can get Jesus into a trap. They ask whether it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response is pure gold. He says to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. In this passage, not only does Jesus keep Sabbath as it is biblically mandated, he also illustrates its actual importance for man. This is not a day about worrying how many steps I take or what amount of weight I can carry. No. Is a day set apart that we as disciples of Christ can show the love and benevolence and glory of our God through our works of mercy and piety. God's purpose for this day is to refresh his people so that we might refresh others through the preaching of the gospel. Just as Christ refreshed a man by healing his hand on the Sabbath, we too are to be about serving others so that they might be refreshed by God's grace and presence in worship. There are three quick applications that we need to take away, brothers. First, Christ re-emphasized the biblical teaching of works of mercy and necessity on the Sabbath. Just as David uh, had an exemption, so to speak, for his military campaigns on the Sabbath, 
we also have exemptions for work that is deemed necessary. Christ illustrates necessary work in the example of the sheep that has fallen into the pit. A sheep was one's livelihood and the means of maintaining their well-being of the owner and his family. To kill it by abandonment on the Sabbath was not necessary. To give a parallel to our day, say a tree falls on your house on a Sunday. That's very familiar to you, isn't it? Uh, was it on a Sunday? No. no, okay. Well, if it was on a Sunday, let's say. Same thing, Holy Week. Um, <laughs> don't take that with you. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's that parallel. If, you, if a tree falls on your house on a Sunday, it's more than fine to put up a tarp. Say your dog runs out into the neighborhood. That's my life. Uh, go get it. In society, to maintain our minimum living conditions, we need law officers and some emergency and public services and things like this. The second uh, thing that we should take away is like the first, works of mercy are needed. For those who are in social services, um, you may need to be on call on the Lord's Day in case of a very sensitive situation that arises. For those who are in the medical field, you better believe that your work is a work of necessity and mercy. As someone who is epileptic, I expect you to be on your game in case I go full seizure on you. We could all include works of piety and things that are permissible. Pastoral work, preaching, evangelistic outreach are not only permissible, but encourage on the Lord's Day. Brothers, I'm not sinning here by preaching to you because this is work. I'm sweating. Brothers, this is encourage, pious work that we should be doing on the Lord's Day. But the third observation is so important, and it's this. We should be careful of rationalizing what are and what are not works of mercy or works of necessity or piety. Jesus' words in Matthew 12 are pointed to a group that restricted and tightened what was considered lawful or biblical to an absurd point. In their tightening and restricting of God's word, they actually nullified it. In their misguided zeal for piety, they actually destroyed any basis for godly living. But the same can be true for those who are flippant with the Sabbath. In our culture, and maybe this is my own experience, but in our culture, it's more likely to find ways out of keeping Sabbath properly than being too strict with it, to be, go outside of, of its original intent. For me, when I first started to practice this command in college, I started to cook at home on Sundays, you know, good for me, right? Rather than picking up. The very first Sunday, y'all, the very first Sunday, I had not prepared properly the week before, so I didn't have the right groceries for the meal that I wanted. And I had plenty of food at home to be content. I was perfectly fine. I was in college. There's not a worry in college, right? But I reasoned with myself. I wanted this meal. Ah, butter is necessary for this meal. So, a quick trip to the store won't matter, right? Brothers, I literally use butter to justify a grocery trip and where I employed others. And I called it a work of necessity. Brothers, that's not the original intent of the Sabbath or of our application. And to this day, this episode is one of the most embarrassingly idiotic things I've done as a Christian. <laughs> Marta's laughing at me. Um, <laughs> just like the Pharisees, I was putting my own opinion upon the original intent of the Sabbath commandments. The only difference between us is that they went one way with it, and I went the other. Brothers, evaluating what is or what is not a necessary work or a work of piety or mercy is a point of wisdom and discernment. And I don't think it's my place to prescribe exactly what a Sunday should look like for you. I believe that there are freedoms of conscience on this issue. But when we think through our decisions and plans for the Lord's Day, we need to ask ourselves, is this in keeping with God's purpose for the day? And does it follow the pattern of Christ? Brothers, remember that the fourth commandment is a part of the moral law. We need to remind ourselves over and over again that God's moral law is not something that God arbitrarily put out or conjured up. The moral law is the picture of his very goodness and righteousness that God in his essence is. 
When Christ interacts with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, he is rescuing God's word and elucidating the very character of our God. For Christ, the Sabbath was not a burden. It's not a day that I could try to wiggle my way out of. It was not something that he had to do until he got done with his mission to the cross. Christ loves the Sabbath because he is the one that instituted it at creation He loved the Sabbath during his ministry because the Father loves the Sabbath. And Christ loves the Sabbath because it is the very reflection of his own glorious divine nature. Christ didn't hum or haw at Sabbath any more than he did the rest of God's law. Christ is truly the man that delights in God's law, in his inward being, because it is his own glorious nature that is displayed in keeping the fourth commandments. This is why in every single gospel, the Sabbath becomes a point of contention between Christ and the Pharisees. Christ loved the Sabbath, and he had every intention to rescue it to its true intent and purpose from false and wicked practices of the Pharisees. Christ wanted to show that he and the Father were not burdensome. He wanted to show that God had instituted a day of rest for our refreshment. It shows his goodness to us when we Sabbath in him. The Sabbath was not an embarrassment upon God's moral perfection. By no means. The Sabbath was a picture of God's goodness to humanity and was one of the means that God received praise and worship because he he is who he is. Oh, brothers, if Christ loves the Sabbath, if the Sabbath was a picture of God's own being and goodness, why would we think that he'd done away with it? Why would God inspire every single gospel writer to write multiple accounts of of Christ's true teaching on the Sabbath if Christ was simply going to toss it out? Brothers, we may not understand God's ways, but God is not illogical. The writers of the gospels purposely preserve Christ's teaching on the Sabbath so that their audience, us, would understand the true intent and purpose of the Sabbath and to delight in this day. Brothers, Christ wants us to delight in this day as he delighted in it, as he delights delights in it as the God-man, Christ Jesus. Christ wants us to delight in this day because he delights in it. It is his day, not ours. Let us be true and faithful to the intent of this commandment, not conjuring up ways out of it. So let us follow his teaching and his example. In Matthew 12, verse 8, Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. This means that he determines as the author and creator of this day what is sacred and beautiful and wonderful about it. It also means that he has the authority to change it from the Sabbath day, the seventh day, to the new day, our day, the Lord's day. This brings us to our third and final point, the Sunday Sabbath or the Lord's Day. (sighs) Fat Baptist preacher. It doesn't work well with all this. Woo! So in our third and final point, I want us to see that the gospel, I want us to see the gospel logic behind the day change from Saturday to Sunday. I want us to see that our sanctifying the first day is because of two extraordinary events in redemptive history. These two events are Christ's resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, both being on the first day of the week. But before we look at that, we need to be reminded of some important Old Testament verses. Uh, You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, uh, they present the Ten Commandments. The differences between these two lists of the commandments was how they understood the seventh day. In Exodus, God gives the reason for his pattern of work and rest at creation for why we keep Sabbath, uh, which we looked at some last week. But in Deuteronomy, Israel is to keep Sabbath because of God's redemption from Egypt. The Sabbath is redemptive because the Egyptians made the Israelites slave over grueling work, but God saved them from that miserable and horrific state. So we see both creation and redemption are the reasons given for why Israel was to keep the seventh day Sabbath. 
Furthermore, in Exodus 31, 12 through 17, we see God explicitly combine the dual reasons for the Sabbath. God speaks of the seventh-day Sabbath as a sign of his creation and his redemption of Israel from Egypt. God says that the Sabbath is a sign, this is verse 12 of Exodus 31, that you may know that I sanctify you, which is another term for redemption. You're redeemed from something to be sanctified to God. That's the, the gospel logic. And that it is a sign, verse 17, that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the Sabbath acted as a sign that pointed the Israelites to remember God's pattern of work and rest and of God's redemption from Egypt to be sanctified to himself. Like the other signs of the Old Covenant, like circumcision and Passover, the seventh day pointed as a sign of God's unique activity in history. These Old Covenant signs were for the purpose that his people remember would remember all of God's glorious deeds and promises But the seventh day particularly pointed and reminded the people of God's work of creation and God's work of redemption from Egypt. That's how the Sabbath was unique. That's what it pointed to, creation, redemption. What I want us to see from these passages is that Christ's own work of redemption and creation parallel God's works of creation and redemption. In Christian speak, we speak of ourselves as new creations, right? But what do we mean that we are new creations? Well, in Ephesians 2.15, Paul explains that Christ destroyed the artificial divisions that separated Jew and Gentile. And in the place of the two, he created one new man by uniting them in himself. He does this, and this is vital, through his flesh, which is a reference to his crucifixion. And if we're talking about his crucifixion, we have to understand crucifixion and resurrection. In Ephesians, 2, uh, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 24, he exhorts Christians to put on the new man, which is crea- created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And it is in contrast to Christians, and this is in contrast to Christians continuing in the old man, which is patterned after the former manner of life. So the Christian, once he is united to Christ by faith, he puts off the old man, which is patterned after this evil world, but puts on the new man, which is patterned after Christ. So in Christ, we have what we could call a new creaturely status. By the new man or new creation, we should understand ourselves as those who pattern their lives after the pattern of Christ. But it is also the work of the Spirit that is key to our new creaturely status. Through the Spirit, Christ enables forgiven sinners to walk as new creatures. Because Christ sanctified himself and rose again, because he did these things, the Spirit comes to us. It is the blessing of the Father to give Christ a Spirit-filled people because of his perfect work at Calvary. Because, of the, because the Father loved Christ, he delighted to give him a new creaturely, Spirit-filled people. So we should see that both Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection, and his giving of the Spirit is what allows us to be new creatures. We see that both the themes of new creation and redemption from sin become heavily tied together in the New Testament. Again, I'm reason over much. Brothers, what I want us to see is that the newness that Christ brings through the cross deals with eternal and heavenly realities. You see, Christ at the cross has created a new creation and is beginning to bring it to completion. He inaugurated a new creation at the resurrection, but he will consummate it in full when he returns. So then, brothers, just as Christ, the Son of God, created the original world, but it fell due to Adam's disobedience, Christ, the perfect Adam, the second Adam, has recreated the world, and the first proof of that, resur- uh, of that, of the new creation, is his resurrection. This is the gospel logic behind the New Testament statements on us being new creations and Christ redeeming and recreating the world. That's a lot, I know, but it needs to be said. So with this in mind, we can understand Paul's statements concerning Christ and the Spirit much better. In reference to his resurrection, if you would, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul calls Christ the first fruits. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul states this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, again, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul goes on in that chapter to explain that Christ, explain the Christ-Adam parallel as it pertains to the new creation and our redemption. Christ is the first among the new creation, meaning his resurrected body. But eventually, we who are filled with the Spirit, the church, his saints, will be like him in our resurrected bodies, in the new heavens and the new earth. In Romans 8, this is why Paul speaks of us, uh, 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 of Christians, as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The proof that there is a resurrection and a new creation is that Christ is now currently in his resurrected new creation body. But those who have the Spirit also know that they too will be like Christ, patterned after him in true righteousness and holiness in our new resurrection bodies, our new creation bodies. But this new creation begins not when we have new bodies, but begins when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Because we also have the Spirit, we know that we actually belong to Christ, that we have been redeemed, and that we will see Christ, the firstfruits, in glory. Brothers, I'm revealing these important doctrinal truths for a purpose. The events that, school, that corresponds with Christ's resurrection and God's provisions of the Spirit are important for our, un, our understanding why we sanctify the first day, the Lord's day. Christ was raised on the first day of the week, and every single gospel goes out of its way to record this fact. In fact, in Luke 24 and John 20, kind of beats you over the head with it. It says the first day of the week, the first day, the same hour, that same day, over and over again. Christ was resurrection on the day after the Passover Sabbath. This is, was a festival day called First Fruits. And funny enough, it was also a day in which was a consecrated Sabbath, according to Leviticus 23, in which no work was to be done. So the very first day that Christ rose, there was no work done by the people. Uh, this day, uh, it was a day in which the first crop of the season, barley, would be burned as a thanksgiving offering. This first crop of barley was a testimony that God was going to provide for a fruitful harvest for Israel. So the symbolism is rich here. The symbolism is glorious here. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is equating Christ, the first fruits, with the feast offering that is given to the Lord. Christ in his resurrection is the new crop of God's new harvest. He is the proof that God is going to bring in the new age, the new heavens, and the new earth. Moreover, every single gospel goes out of its way, especially Luke and John, to emphasize that Christ met with his people in his resurrected body. The disciples worship Christ on this day because he was the proof of God's new creation. He was the vindication of all of, God's, of Christ's gospel ministry concerning the new heavens and the new earth. The reason Christ met with his disciples regularly on Sunday for 40 days before the ascension was so that his disciples could worship in light of the new creation Christ provides. You see, as the seventh-day Sabbath acted as a sign for the original creation, the Lord's Day acts as a, new, as a sign pointing to the new creation that Christ provides and is evidenced by his very re own resurrection. And with its festive beginnings, it is also pointing to the new creation that we will one day too be consummate in this glory, that we one day too will be part of it fully of the new creation. Likewise, Acts chapter 2 presents the outpouring and provision of the Spirit. Pentecost was another Old Testament holiday that was on the first day of the week. And again, it was a day of solemn Sabbath, of solemn assembly. Again, it acted as a sign of God's provision in the harvest, but the wheat harvest signified much better crop and greater feasting. The idea of fullness and completeness comes to mind with this festival. No one goes hungry. So it is with the provision of the Spirit upon the church. Christ gave the church His Spirit without measure on this day, the Lord's day. It is the day in which Christians meet together to commune and delight in the blessings of salvation that Christ provides for us. 
The blessings of the forgiveness of sins, justification, adoption, sanctification, and ultimately glorification are only communicated to us through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling us is the sign and seal and seal that we are new creatures in Christ and are bound towards glory. We are redeemed and sanctified to the Lord. We, so we meet on this day to commemorate the new creation evidenced by Christ's resurrection, but we also meet because those benefits of his resurrection were com- officially communicated to us on Pentecost, the first day of the week, the Lord's day. And the Spirit still uses this day. Amen? The Spirit still uses this day, the Lord's day, to communicate to us more and more the glorious nature of Christ's work for us. The Spirit is proof that we are in Christ and have been redeemed from this wicked and evil age. And He is the sign that God is working in the midst of this lost and dying world because we are in this lost and dying world and we are going out with a message of eternal life that is found in the resurrected Christ. The Spirit is a sign that we are truly sanctified to the Lord and that we are His. And we remember and celebrate that fact by sanctifying this day, by worshiping and communing with our God through the Spirit. Brothers, there's so much more. This really should have been two sermons, but I had to push in. There's so much more that we could talk about. But what we have is sufficient for us to see the marvelous deeds that Christ did on this day. Both the new creation and the new redemption are in view on the Lord's day. This day acts as a sign for Christians to remember what Christ has done and is doing in the midst of his people. But it is also a sign of where we will one day be. Just as Christ sits in utter delight of his work of redemption and new creation, is it at, that he is at rest and glory, sitting at the right hand of the Father, we too have a Sabbath rest to enter. In Hebrews 4, it states that as God rested from his works and rest in glory, we will do the same if we continue in our path as faithful sojourners in this world. So brothers, both, both past, present, future, we have more than enough reason to sanctify this day. The pattern of Christ's post-resurrection activity with his disciples. The provision of the Spirit to apply God's redemption on the Lord's day. And the pattern of Christ's rest and glory are all reasons we are to keep Sabbath on the Lord's day. By Christ's example and the apostles' example of worship on this day. Both being days of actual consecrated worship. A Sabbath. We now appropriately worship on the day of God's new creation and God's new redemption, the Lord's day. Brothers, this day is a day of delight. This day is not to be used as a bludgeon or a burden in our Christian walk. It is a day that we, are, that we free ourselves from the distractions of this fallen world. It is a day that we are free to pause the news. So much comes in nowadays. It's a day that we can take a reprieve from those things. It's a day to free us from grocery lists and bills and mindless work. It is a day that we are free from frantic activities like pool parties or walkathons or all the other things that can so quickly become a burden. We are freed from those mindless, needless activities so that we can rest. We can rest with the purpose of having our minds turned to Christ and his great works of redemption and new creation. Brothers, I know of no Christian who says they spend enough time pondering the things of God. I know of no brother who says, yeah, I spent enough time with Jesus this week. Oh, brothers, this day was not given to us that we might commune with Christ in the world. Uh, this, this day was given to us that we might commune with Christ in word in prayer and piety, not to be burdened by distraction. This entire day, not this mere hour, but the day has been given to us that we might know of our God more and more. The entirety of redemptive history is bent towards us commuting, communing with our God on this day. Brothers, will you listen to the testimony of our God? Do you see the pattern established by Christ himself and his apostles on this day? 
do we mirror that delight in worship and communion with the risen Christ on this day? The fourth commandment is not merely about ceasing needless activity. It's not about keeping a list of what I can or can't do on Sunday. No! Its purpose, this day's glorious purpose, is so that we might savor and delight in what our God has done for us in Christ. To remember his new creation and his bounteous provision of the Spirit. Just as the feasts of old, we are to remember that this day is used by God to communicate his redemptive purposes and to delight in the goodness of his new creation. Brothers, are you weak and heavy laden in your Christian walk? Do you feel you're gasping for nourishment in the church at times? Brothers, I'm just like you. There are weeks and days in which I feel so far from God. Brothers, I need this day. I need this day. For some, you may remember when Christ was new and His mercies, His mercy seemed so glorious, but that glorious joy seems so far gone now. You want that fire and passion when you first knew Christ, but you don't know where to turn. Oh, brothers, Our God has given us this day for that purpose. This is the day where we can ponder anew the mercies of God, free from worry and distraction. This is the day where we can feast upon the means of grace to remember and strengthen our communion with our God. Amen, Seth. Today is the day that we remember the new creation. Our day, uh, this is the day that we remember our place in God's story as his beloved elect saints, spirit-filled saints and how the Spirit is continually at work to bring us to rest in glory. Brothers, brothers, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us pray.